Thank you so much for tuning in to the Varying Viewpoints podcast series sponsored by the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice at Rutgers University. I'm your host, Bianca Neal, visiting scholar at the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice in the Rutgers Graduate School of Education and the Rutgers Center for Minority Serving Institutions. Today's podcast episode is a special highlight on a changemaker in higher education. This scholar practitioner uses their work to impact the greater community by merging scholarship and practice. Our special guest today is Dr. Rafael Travis, a professor and the MSW Program Director at Texas State University, a Hispanic-serving institution in Texas. So let's get started. Welcome, Dr. Travis. Your work integrates the best of social work research and public health research with an applied research and direct practice strategies. In addition, your practice and consultancy works to emphasize healthy development over the life course, resilience, and civic engagement with a focus on communities of color and those that feel marginalized. First off, I would love to hear more about your research and what sparked it. Yes, thank you so much for inviting me on to, to talk with you today. Anytime that I get to talk about my work is just a, a welcome opportunity and uh, I appreciate our opportunities to have uh, collaborated in the past and uh, thank you again for this time. But in general about my work, uh, it, it started from the earliest of days, but from a professional standpoint, it really is connecting our thoughts about the best ways to invest in the well-being of young people and how to leverage the best of art in general, but hip hop culture in particular. And it's exciting. We're celebrating the 50th year of hip hop culture, um, but really that's essentially what the work is. I started out at the professional level really just wanting to help young people. Um, a lot of my own, you know, growing up, it, I benefited from people pouring into me and investing in me and believing in me, even though, you know, there were times when things were difficult and rough and things didn't look so great. But uh, I really benefited from just that unconditional investment and and people being a champion for me. And, and that was the spirit of that type of energy was what I wanted to help invest in for other young people. Um, and so that was really the anchor for my professional life for the start and, and early on um, moving through social work and into my doctoral work. Uh, Alongside that was really my other life and passion and interest in hip hop culture. I'm born and raised in New York. Uh, my birth year is the, the birth year of hip hop, 1973. And it's been a part of my life since day one. And something that helped me um, from just an, a fun, exciting standpoint, as well as something that helped me from a personal standpoint in terms of my own development and, you know, building of an identity and uh, self-expression and things like that. But that was really a side. That wasn't a part of my professional thinking. Um, however, you know, as a social worker, I started to see that, you know, a lot of the young people I work with, they were tapped into the hip hop as a not just as an entertainment thing, but as a form of self-expression. And then later on, as uh, was doing my work in um, in Los Angeles, interested more in wasn't initially in, in interested in hip hop, but it was more in, in thinking about you know coming out of my work as a social worker. I found that a lot of people in the field really in their interest in, in youth saw youth as, as problems to be fixed. And that really wasn't what got me into the work. Again, I wanted, you know, I, I was coming from more of a strength-based focus. How can we invest in these young people? But that sparked my interest in thinking about, wow, you know, 
what people that are supposed to be helping young people, what they think about those young people, I think actually makes a big difference in the type of care and the type of services and, and type of environments that they create. And so that's what I was interested in looking at. How could we have a better understanding of, of the perspectives of, of people that are supposed to be serving you and how, how might that impact the quality of the work that they do? And so I was working with youth-based organizations looking at that, um, but it just so happens that, and I was interested also in in comparing youth development organizations to traditional organizations and then youth organizing or youth social justice organizations. Because part of my assumption was that we were going to see different different attitudes across those, those programs. So in looking at that, it just so happened that two of them were heavily, well, yeah, two of them were, were heavily integrated with hip hop culture. One was a straight hip hop program, Juice, um, Justice United and Creating Energy. That was a strictly hip hop program. But there's another program, Youth Justice Coalition, was around youth organizing, around juvenile justice, right? Improving the inequities and injustices within the juvenile criminal justice system, juvenile justice system. But there was a lot of hip hop integrated into that space. Um, And so that got my wheels spinning. Uh, Maybe maybe there's a way to kind of investigate these things together, but I didn't at the time. So I finished up my work in Los Angeles and I really didn't start the, the bona fide hip hop based work until I was done with my doctoral work and, and started as a as an assistant professor. And that was really driven by the work of Edgar Tyson, um, who was in the social work field and was one of the pioneers in publishing research on uh, integrating hip hop culture into therapeutic strategies. And that was really the that was that was the the sort of final straw of like, okay, I think I want to look into this a little bit more strategically and 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 that's kind of where I started formally entering into this work and thinking about how do how can we better understand the therapeutic impacts or benefits or values of hip hop culture and then maybe once we have a better understanding of certain things how might we then begin to use that again, in service of investing in the long-term well-being of, of young people. That's awesome. So what I hear, you've had this amazing journey. So initially, being born in the height of hip-hop in 73 in New York, uh, making your way to Los Angeles, UCLA, finishing up your doctoral work, um, coming upon the works of Edward Tyson, um, in the social work field and just understanding the therapeutic impact of hip hop and then growing deeper into that and just building off of strengths based um, of perspectives of youth. And I would love to know um, how does that shape your work now? Because I know you have the Create Lab. Can you share a little bit about more, more about that and how um, that plays a part in your work today? Yeah, absolutely. So a little bit of a lead up to sort of how we got to the Create Lab. In the earliest work, my main question was, you know, for the for those that did have an early, you know, started research, um, it tended to fall into two categories. One was either, you know, hip hop culture is the greatest thing in the world and it's going to save us all. And the other was hip hop is the worst thing in the world and we're all going to go to hell, right? So it was kind of these two polar opposites. And I'm simplifying a bit, but that's generally the two camps. And what I was more interested in is, and this was experientially, right? Understanding anecdotally that engagement really with anything can be helpful and it can be potentially harmful. Um, but particularly with, with hip hop, we... We know that it was grounded in ideas of empowerment, 
from the earliest days, right? A form of self-expression, a, a counter-narrative to a lot of what was going on, um, being able to express yourself visually, um, kinesthetically or physically with your body, um, through your words, uh, all these different things. So we know that it was empowering in many ways, but we're also aware of the risky elements, right? The things that people are, you know, are always have critiqued hip hop culture about, whether it's misogyny or um, glorifying violence or or substance use, right? So, so the idea was that there are these potentially empowering and potentially risky, but nobody had really looked at that empirically. Um, and so that was my entry into the work formally as a, as a professional. The other piece that I wanted to do, and, and this was led by Tyson, who, who took a quantitative lens to things, was, and this was a bit of self-censoring, and I, I'm not saying this was a good idea, um, but what I, what I did at the time, I felt like in order for this to be taken more seriously, I really want to do this quantitatively and bring some numbers to this conversation. And so that's really what I did to start was, was this empower, could empowering and risky engagement coexist? Could people get both out of this, out of engaging hip hop culture? And then the second was, can we look at this like very quantitatively? Um, and so that's, that's what I did. And so, you know, lo and behold, we found that when people talk about what do I get out of engaging the culture, that there were these very empowering things that people talked about. They talked about, you know, a feeling better through hip hop. They talked about doing better. They talked about being better as a person. They talked about a better sense of belonging and connection to communities that they value. They talk about, you know, uh, inspiring them to want, you know, better conditions for the communities that they're a part of. So these very tangible, empowering outcomes of engaging hip hop culture. And, and so we, we found that over and over and over. We also found that, you know, in, in some of the other research that's out there, you know, people that created their own, you know, songs and music within hip hop therapeutic groups or, or individually, a lot of those themes aligned with the themes that we found, right? So these themes of esteem and resilience and growth and community and change, we found they were consistent all over. And when people looked at song lyrics, right, analyzing song lyrics, we found those same empowering themes there too. Uh, but we also found that people talked about the risky elements, right? So for some, it does make them, you know, uh, more likely to think favorably about, you know, alcohol use or substance use or things like that. So, so there was this element of both, um, and that really was important in continuing the conversation. It's like if we know that these things exist, okay, what's the next step? How can we leverage what's most empowering, and how can we set up strategies to potentially inhibit? things that are more risky, right? How can we give people the the, the tools and the resources, the language and structure to, to really invest in young people and create activities and things like that? So, so kind of building from that, uh, the Create Lab was an opportunity to connect with other researchers that are doing similar work and create opportunities to collaborate um, it's also a space to bring in the actual music making elements, right? So there's the science side, but then there's the practice side. And the practice side is both, um, you know, thinking about interventions, right? What are things that we can set up to improve well-being in some measurable capacity? But it's also about creating the opportunity for people to actually use the music, right? So the there's a, a physical studio that we have and it has, you know, all of the music hardware and software that people need to, well, particularly around hip hop. Um, so there's no like saxophones and guitars and stuff. Now people can bring them in and use it, but, but it's a, you know, it's a traditional studio 
and you know what I call a maker space, right? So people can come and use the space to create whatever they like. But we have, you know, the computers that can handle music making capacities. We have all of the software needed, uh, whether it's Ableton Live or Pro Tools or Fruity Loops. Uh, we have a lot of the the traditional software that people need to make music. We have things like the Ableton Push. We have the uh, Pioneer DDJs there for you know turntables. We have keyboards, uh, professional level mics. Uh, so it's really a space that people can learn, uh, people can collaborate, and we can invite creative artists like producers and artists uh, to come in and help work with people. So we run our annual mixtape camp out of that space and we do other you know workshops and things we can also take some of the equipment from the studio and move to other locations to hold workshops and events and things like that so the create lab is is really a a fantastic opportunity to collaborate and bridge uh, bridge professions bridge disciplines um, and also you know eliminate some of the power dynamics that the artificial power dynamics that may exist between kind of the university and community. Um, And so we have some really great opportunities uh, out of the Create Lab um, to make some just amazing connections and create some really meaningful experiences for young people. It sounds like, especially what you're sharing with your research and merging that with coming up with interventions as well as uh, partnerships with researchers, educators, and artists, as well as community-based organizations um, to really help uh, provide understanding of educational health and therapeutic benefits of music and art, um, that you are really working to not only work at the university level in regards to like you know, what, what research you can produce, but you're really trying to merge this or you are merging it with practical opportunities for community, people in the community to get involved. Um, and you talked about power dynamics. Um, and I know you mentioned um, with some of your work, you focus on communities of color and those that feel marginalized. Um, it, it sounds like it's a very conscious decision. Is it, is it a conscious decision on your part? And, and what, what um, frames that conscious decision? Yes, I think, you know, in terms of working with communities of color, that was my interest in general um, coming into this work. I, you know, from the earliest days, my my goal wasn't only to help young people in general, but it was to help young people like myself. Um, Again, thinking about, you know, my home community and the importance of things like the community center, the importance of of things like mentors, the importance of things like, um, you know, what we, uh, you know, basketball on Fridays and Saturday nights on the weekends, you know, positive, safe spaces that were youth friendly um, and had the goal of really helping young people be at their best, knowing the challenges that young people face. particularly in lower income communities and communities of color. And knowing that, you know, what people invested in me paid off, right? So just from an experiential standpoint, it works, you know? Um, And so I wanted to be able to, you know, not like I had a magic pill or formula for doing it, but that was my, that was the impetus. That was the thing that was my spark. And so that continued. Now, you know, 
coming through, you know, graduate school and all that kind of, you know, and doctoral work and everything, you understand like there are some universal things that are applicable to all young people. Um, and particularly, you know, my, the person that I, you know, Neil Halfon and, and, and his work uh, in life course health development, like these are universally applicable principles that exist for human development. So I like, I, I recognize that, um, but that passion for recognizing how um, inequities and injustices make it particularly difficult uh, for many communities of color in, in protect, and especially if, you know, you intersect, um, you know, lower income and, and, and things like that. And so not just out of my own personal experience, but then having that added kind of, you know, research and science lens to it that, oh, we know it's really difficult for marginalized communities and those inequitable outcomes are exacerbated, you know, when, when you start thinking about systems of, of oppression and marginalization. So, so kind of that personal, as well as the, you know, the, the science behind things is, you know, kind of really propelled that intentionality that you talk about. So our, you know, my work is obviously open to, to anyone and, and any group can come and benefit from what we do. Um, but you are a hundred percent correct in that there, there is a particular interest in, um, black and Brown communities. Um, you know, we, we're a Hispanic serving institution. We have a lot of first generation students that are here and, um, you know, recognizing that a lot, there's, there's a lot of adversity that young people and young adults face. Um, there's a, a lot more attention to complex trauma that comes out of these spaces and these communities. And, you know, that's, that's a big part of the work that I'm trying to do. Um, so yeah, there is a level of intentionality for sure. Thank you for sharing and elaborating. I wanted to know as well, um, in regards to people who have influenced your work, you mentioned um, Edgar Tyson, you also mentioned um, a few other people. I know, I, I believe it's pretty accurate that we can say that hip hop ed and the hip hop ed community is is growing. It's grown a lot, um, but it's been around for a while. Um, can you talk about what it was like to be be part of that community in the beginning when this was not so popular work? Yeah, absolutely. So it, ironically, it was at a conference held by, led and uh, facilitated by Edgar Tyson. Uh, it's called the, it was called the, the One Mike, One Movement um, Conference. And I want to say what year is, 2012? Yeah, so a little over 10 years ago. And at that conference, I ran, well, actually Timothy Jones, he, he reached out to me through another colleague and, you know, we both said, yeah, we'll be at the conference. And that's where I met him. And that's when I was introduced to hip hop, the hip hop ed community. So that was 2012 and it was still in its pretty infant stages. It had been around a little bit before that, but that was really important from my own professional development because it was outside of the quote unquote therapy space. And that was important because, you know, even in my work, right, you know, I'm a licensed clinical social worker, but as I mentioned before, my interest has been in the positive youth development space. And it's, it's a, it's a nuance, it's subtle, but it's diff, It's a, there's a difference there. And essentially I wanted to be able to engage in this work outside of the idea that someone had to have a diagnosable disorder, you know, in order to work with them, right? 
Um, and not saying that that's all that social work does, but a lot of times, you know, when you're talking about mental health and you're talking about, you know, th- therapy, that's the primary lens that you're introduced as a service provider. And I was really interested in the full spectrum of ways that we can invest in young people. And so hip hop ed was a great alternative or additional lane to explore this work, particularly because, you know, in educational systems, they were more open to the concept of positive youth development in that space, right? So you were seeing more discussion around not just academic development in schools, but academic, social, and emotional development or learning in school spaces. Um, and, and you also had, you know, positive youth development work in those spaces as well. And I connected with Tim the most out of out of that initially out of that hip hop ed community because he was also a person that looked through that positive youth development lens. So we both basically spoke the same language around how we how do we think about promoting the best of hip hop culture in service of positive youth development. And so it was a really great, and it still is, a really great space to explore a lot of these ideas. The other aspect of it too is in terms of the communities that were, you know, quote unquote friendly to hip hop integrated strategies, it was schools. It wasn't therapy. It wasn't really big in social work. There really weren't any, and there still aren't many spaces within the social work community or even the public health community. Um, But there's a lot in schools and after school and, you know, sort of school adjacent (laughs) spaces. Um, And that continues now. So I work a lot with the TRIO program which is a, a you know education driven initiative, and um, so so being a part of the hip hop ed community was was great, and a lot of you know what I what I call hip hop cultural ambassadors come out of that space. Uh, so you know probably the most prominent out of that space is Chris Emden, um, but there are so many you know Bettina Love, and and there's there's just an, a very large community within education related spaces that are are very friendly to hip hop culture and um and so there's a there's a natural collaboration definitely and and you touched upon this next question um which is you mentioned that hip hip hop ed uh, was more i guess more more a, a friendlier space that integrated um hip hop strategies and just hip hop into, it was more welcoming than social work. Um, As I think about your work and what you're doing, you have a unique background in that you have a strong foundation, um, you know, in science and your focus on quantitative research, uh, but then you have a different lens. What, for you, what is a change maker and and how have you, participated as a change maker in this space? Change maker, you know, that's a tough one. I, I, my, my easy answer would be change makers, whatever you think it is. <laughs> no, but um, for me, I would say a change maker is someone within a space that allows people in that space to think outside the box or encourages or not just encourages, but inspires people to think outside of the box. Um, Because a lot of times in our silos, you know, we have our language, we have our jargon, we have our, the things that make us comfortable, you know, and belong in, in that space. Um, And I think change makers, inspire people to think outside of that space and, and be 
uh, uncomfortable in thinking about possibility that may look a little different than what people are used to or, or comfortable with in a good way. Um, in terms of me, um, if I had to put that label on myself, I try to try not to like do that kind of stuff, but um, but I do feel like I have encouraged some people to think more expansively about what social work is. It's already hard enough for people to, even people that think they know what social work is, don't know what social work is. Um, so, I, you know, I think we have a little bit of a branding problem in that regard. But what I try to do is help people to, I mean, social work is such an amazing field. There's so much breadth. Um, there's so much opportunity to do good with the profession. And so I think first and foremost, that's what I try to let people know. But I think that there's tremendous opportunity to in, to really using the creative arts. You know, I, I'm obviously I'm speaking mostly on behalf of hip hop culture, but but really I'm I'm thinking about the creative arts across the board. I think we have so much opportunity to integrate creative arts more boldly uh, within the profession. I think there's enough evidence out there of, of the therapeutic value, um, not just at the individual, the kind of group therapeutic practice level, but you know, one of the great aspects of social work is the macro angle and advocacy work. And, um, and so I think there's a lot of room there. So, so talking back, you know, kind of, we were talking before about some of the early things that inspired me, you know, in my, in that early doctoral work that I did with um, Youth Justice Coalition, they were, you know, that was some of my first exposure to policy related work. The kids that were there, you know, they would, and yeah, not just Youth Justice Coalition, also um, the Community Coalition Youth uh, is, the acronym is say yeah, um, but they were doing policy work. They were advocating. They were talking to legislators. They were leading campaigns. And I'm like, who are these kids? Like they, they were kids. They were more comfortable in front of politicians than I was. And I, you know, I was an adult. And so I'm like, you know, for one of the great things about social work is that macro lens, is that attention to policy work is that attention to community change and so i think there's so much opportunity for integrating creative arts across the different levels of of social work as a profession and um you know we have this the music studio here and you know i i think a lot you know and i've written about this you know where are all of those barriers that exist to integrating art within the profession. But, you know, I want to, I want people to say, yeah, of course we've got a, a music studio in our school of social work. Like why wouldn't, you know, I want to normalize the arts as a tool for investing in well-being, whether it's for individuals or, or communities. And so that's where I, I feel that I have the potential to be a, a change maker in, in that, I'm, I'm confident. I'm confident in the possibility, and um, and as long as I, you know, whatever role that I'm in, that's kind of the energy that I'm trying to bring. Thank you so much for sharing. I think you are. I believe you're definitely a change maker, but I believe also by your definition of being a person who is expanding people's um, thinking, um, who is challenging people to think outside of the box. Um, I got excited when you said, why wouldn't we think of having a, a lab, a music studio in a social work school um, and be able to integrate that? I think what's something that I picked up on uh, your, what you shared in regards to your relationships and the people that you work with um, and even just bridging the gap with you know the field of education um, is a lot of times in order to solve complex problems, nuanced problems, or to think of creative solutions, or to find uh, the strength in some of the 
um, solutions we have. I think it takes collaboration and working together with other people. And you do that very well, especially with, you know, the lab, working with other researchers, other educators, artists, community-based organizations. I have to ask, as, a, as speaking of well-being, as a scholar practitioner, how do you apply what you've learned to your own life and your work? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, a couple of ways. Um, one of the things that I have been able to do, well, in learning, something that I, I learned in this work, um, at least learned in more depth, um, was around the role of being regulated and grounded and being able to to calm yourself <laughs> and not be reactionary uh, and, you know, and learning how to handle anxiety and, you know, calm during stressful experiences. Um, and so I've been much more intentional about using either listening to or creating uh, art or, you know, music in service of, you know, regulation and calming and grounding myself and, and just turning to art during those times um, much more than I did before. Uh, you know, so I, and, and the other part is, is just creating. Um, so, you know, I would, you know, I, I'd ma I made mixtapes forever, you know, and, and it would be more out of wanting to share it you know, like, hey, you know, this is an issue or, you know, trying to build awareness around certain things, whether it's inequities or injustices or, you know, things like that. Um, and so, and, and wanting to express myself, like sort of have, you know, my voice on certain things. Um, but I didn't realize how much I needed to do that. <laughs> you know what I mean? That um, like there was something therapeutic for me as a person in that creative process and in, in making these things. And so that was something that came to me later. You know, I would, I would make these things and do these things not for validation, but it was, but it was more external facing. Um, and I didn't realize how much I just needed to do those things and that I felt better, you know, creating the, the creative process and you know you talk about flow we know about flow and, and just what it what it does to be in that space um and that's that's the name of my my organization flow story right it's it's kind of out of that but so that's something that as i've gotten older i realized how much i need to actually create um and i've also leaned into learning new things you know um I've always liked beat making and beats and, and that element of, you know, listening to different production and in the, you know, the, the, the different quality of production and learning what I like and what I didn't like and what things like that. Um, but in working with, you know, Dr. Elliot Gann, who does therapeutic beat making, that's his, his practice, his scholarship, his area of work by collaborating, I realized like, Oh, this is you know this is another creative outlet, and so um, so I like beat making. I'm not an expert or anything like that. Um, I've also rekindled my love for DJing. You know, I had turntables when I was younger and kind of gave that up, so, sold my turntables and stuff. But I've rekindled that. You know, I love spinning. Um, so you know, these are all different kind of creative outlets. Um, I also like teaching people. I'm not great at, at these things, but, you know, I'm, I'm a novice, but I can, I can teach novices to be expert novices. <laughs> so, uh, so I, I like that, you know, and, and you know, I, I share this a lot, but when talking with people about embracing their creative side, I think, you know, we often get caught up because so much of society is about sort of displaying and showcasing and, uh, you know, 
um, we get caught up in, in products and, and things have to be perfect and great. And, you know, I always say, you know, when we go to the beach, you know, sometimes we play in the sand because we want to build a sand castle. But sometimes when we go to the beach, we play in the sand because we just want to play in the sand, right? Because it's fun. And I encourage people to engage in creative activities without having some outcome in mind, uh, without having to have the perfect, you know, song or lyrics or beat or art and just embrace the the process. Um, And that's kind of what I've learned um, to try to apply in my own life. That's awesome. If Dr. Travis can DJ, I'm sure there's a lot of other uh, scholars out there who can pick up a hobby uh, or an art, a form of expression uh, in the arts that they can just use for well-being um, to, you know, bring some relaxation, get into the flow. And I, I heard you drop a uh, flow story. I did not mention that you are also an author of a book as well. Can you share a little bit about the book and the title of the book as well? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I wrote a, a book called The Healing Power of Hip Hop. And it's one of the fav- my favorite projects that I've ever been involved with. And really it was a, a, an opportunity to do a couple of things. First, I wanted to demystify the idea of hip hop as a culture and, and help those that you know, anytime they hear hip hop, they think of just a song that they've heard on the radio. And, and a lot of people have a stick, you know, there's a stigma, a negative connotation. And I really wanted to help open the door to thinking about hip hop more broadly as a culture, talking about the history. Um, it it definitely was is through the lens of the Black community, what it means and where it came from, the different aspects of of Black history and culture that contributed. Not only uh, we're talking about the roots of of hip-hop culture, we also talk about the definite contributions from uh, Puerto Rican and Latinx community. We we talk about uh, the Jamaican and Caribbean influences. And we talk about the longer, you know, Black diaspora history of, uh, you know, West Africa and just the African continent in general. But in short, the book really touches on what the culture has meant and can mean uh, for the Black community as well as the global marginalized community. There's a big part of that in there as well. Um, So it's unpacking hip hop as a culture, but it also introduces a lot of what I call hip hop cultural ambassadors, like some of the, the people that are really not just talking about the value of the culture, but really embodying uh, the healing power of the culture, a lot of times because of their own lived experiences and what it meant for them, but then how they show up in, in professional spaces, you know, so uh, a lot of, it's funny because, you know, the book is, it came out in 16, so, you know, I wrote it in 2015, 2014, uh, but a lot of those voices are are prominent voices now, so, you know, so I talked to Chris Emden, um, Ian Levy's in there, Elliot Gann, Timothy Jones, uh, Mazi Mutafa, um, a lot of people that, you know, are, are very well known and recognized uh, in hip hop spaces and other spaces as well. Um, but the book is a, an introduction to them as these cultural ambassadors um, at the time. And then the last thing was really just celebrating, you know, how incredibly empowering the culture is and can be. Um, it really is, you know, so I study it and, you know, in this academic space and, you know, in these professional things. But 
really it's an organic healing culture that existed, you know, well before anybody wrote anything about it. And so, you know, I always try not to to have that fact lost, right? It's really just shining a light on an organic healing community-based culture that uh, has gone global, right? I was just listening today uh, about some of the the protests um, in Mozambique for a hip-hop artist that meant a lot and and still means a lot to the community um, for his willingness to speak out about inequities and injustices there. And after his death, inspired, you know, mobilization and people to protest in a society where people don't do that because of the harsh crackdowns, you know, at the government level. But it, it just speaks to that you know, we're talking about social change type of empowerment. We talk about community building um, and and also that counter narrative, right? The, the counter narrative of who people see themselves as um, or, or how others view them versus how they can see themselves and the possibility of, of how they may see themselves. So um, so the, that was a big part of it too. The, the really celebration. It's like, hey, we have we have this amazing thing that is literally a fuel for life for so many, um, and it's it's there for it's there for us to to really step into and, and embrace individually and collectively. And so I'm I'm hoping to um, my plan is to write the. Uh, sec- and I've already started it, but um, the model that I use in the work, um, it's it's out there in articles and things like that, but I, I really want to pull it together in a cohesive way uh, as in, in a book form. And so that will be kind of the part two, the unofficial part two to that book. Um, but I'll, I'm going to start working on that this fall. So we have the first exclusive of you sharing that you'll be sharing your model, uh, coming out with a new book. And I'm so glad that this, this interview is taking place in the 50th year of the anniversary of hip hop. So it's celebratory and, and with your work, I know not only are you advancing the research agenda, but you're also, um, you know, giving voice to other voices, amplifying other voices that have already been sharing um, want to make sure that I thank you for your time, your work, um, the wisdom that you shared as well. Before we close, how, one, how can people reach out to you? And two, is there anything you'd like to share before we leave? Yes. The first thing is you can reach me on social media is probably the best way nowadays. Uh, you can reach me at, at rap T junior. That's R-A-P-T-J-R on, you know, Instagram, Twitter, pretty much anything uh, at Rap T Jr. And in terms of things that I'd like to share, uh, I think, uh, as you mentioned, we are in the 50th year of, of this culture. And I still think that there's, there's so much uh, possibility. One of the things that often is kind of misattributed to hip hop culture is that it's only a youth culture. And if you think about 50 years old, <laughs> you think about anybody that you know that's 50 years old, right? Um, there's there's a lot of layers to their life, right? A lot of different seasons to their life. And hip hop culture is, is very multi-generational. And I think we have yet to tap into how we can leverage the most empowering aspects of the culture across different generations. Uh, And I'd like for us to move away from only limiting it to discussions of ways of engaging young people and really step into 
what opportunities exist across generations uh, to leverage what is most empowering and to inhibit what is was most risky uh, in service of healthy development for families, for communities uh, across the lifespan and around the globe, you know? Wow, definitely. I, I believe it's definitely intergenerational, you know, with young people, uh, with, with people who are, are, well, I've been have been in hip hop in the since the beginning. I am looking forward to continuing continuing the conversation. People will have to actually follow up back up with you, buy your book when it comes out, um, and continue to stay up to date with your research. Um, you have a lot of great research coming through. You have the Create Lab. You have Flow Story, the organization. You have the book. And I want to make sure I thank you for your time and also thank you for being so open and forthright with your journey um, and how it connects to your work as a scholar and practitioner. You definitely are a change maker, definitely challenging people to think out of the box. And I look forward to having the next conversation once you release your book. As we close, I'd love to thank our special guest, Dr. Raphael Travis, and of course, the Samuel DeWitt Proctor Institute for Leadership, Equity, and Justice at Rutgers University. Thanks for tuning in. Thank you so much.